Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. I am your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Hi, everybody. So glad to have you back for another episode. Before I dive in to this week's topic, a few quick housekeeping things up top. First, tomorrow night, April 22nd, is the premiere of my new party in Los Angeles. It's called Gorgeous Gorgeous. I know you've heard me plug this before. And baby, it is sold out. Well, let me put it this way. The online presale is sold out. We will have a limited number of tickets at the door. So if you couldn't nab your ticket in advance and you're in LA, you should still come. Grab a ticket at the door if you can grab one. If you can't, worst case scenario, the venue has an amazing outdoor seating area that you don't need a ticket for, so definitely shoot your shot. You miss every shot you don't take, all right? I'm so excited for this party. It's going to be so much fun. So see you there. And also, there's going to be more of them. So I will keep you all posted on that. Now, I want to continue our great tradition of reading some spectacular reviews from this week. First up, this is from RRRIP24, and the title is Found My People. Oh, I love that. All my life, I've been a low-key amateur pop music nerd that has always obsessed over the behind-the-scenes production, cultural minutia that makes my favorite pop artists fly or flop. Imagine the delight when I found a podcast that was right up my alley. I've absolutely binged multiple episodes at a time and have loved every minute. With that said, please, please, please give a Kelly Clarkson episode apart from an American Idol episode. Dying to hear your thoughts on her musical highs and lows. Well, without saying anything, don't worry about it. Okay? Second is from Keith James Jones. Get out of my brain, he said. This podcast is top tier. The way it's put together and edited with music clips is amazing. So much research and really good takes. It's like listening to your pals of a conversation about your favorite pop stars. Cannot recommend highly enough. Thank you so much, Keith James Jones. And finally, anonymous listener number two. Never has a podcast catered more to my interests. I love the serious in-depth analysis and focus on music and media rather than gossip. We need more content like this. As a lover of music of all kinds, the episodes really get my mind running. Can't wait for the Taylor episode and regularly fantasize about being the guest on an Olivia episode. We're going to have to do that in like 2027. And then he says, edit Rihanna double episode, one of the most cathartic experiences of my life. Girl, me too. Anyway, so thank you so much for your kind reviews and please go leave more. The reviews really help the podcast get picked up by the Apple podcast algorithm. You guys have been doing so great at that. I really, really appreciate it. It helps me so much. It's the best thing you can do to help the podcast out at the moment. I want to announce the winner of our review contest in that regard, and it is Usher. So we will be working on an episode about Usher, and that will be coming in the near future. Thank you to everyone that voted. I can't wait for that episode. Please follow us on social media at DJLOUIEXIV on both Instagram and Twitter and on Instagram at Pop Pantheon Pod for all updates and cool graphics and all kinds of other fun stuff. Get in the Discord. The link for that is in the show notes and will also be on social media. And check out all the Spotify playlists for every episode also on social media, also in the show notes. And without further ado, here is this week's episode on one of the greatest pop acts of all time, the wonderful ABBA. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the dueling and intersecting definitions of pop. There's pop as in whatever kind of music is popular at a given moment. And then there's pop, the genre, often glistening, perhaps deceptively light-seeming, hook-centric, broadly appealing music 
characterized by familiar verse-chorus structures and emotionally broad tropes that are easy on the ears but incredibly challenging to do well. I can't think of a single act that has both embodied and influenced the shape of the latter definition better than Swedish superstars ABBA, who stand today as perhaps the touchstone for what pop music can be in its purest and most perfectly executed form, and whose career, legacy, and enduring appeal has helped situate them as the platonic ideal for the entire genre. There can't be any pop fan on earth or any pop act who's come after them who doesn't see ABBA as the best of what pop music can be. ABBA is a supergroup of sorts, comprised of husband and wife duos, and please God forgive me for my Swedish pronunciations here, Bjorn Ulvies and Agneta Feltskog, and Benny Anderson and Annie Fried Lingstad. Benny and Bjorn are the primary producers and songwriters of the group, and in the 60s, prior to creating ABBA, were each Swedish pop stars in their own rights in the bands The Hepstars and The Hootenanny Singers, respectively, before joining forces in the latter part of that decade to become a songwriting duo. Meanwhile, Agneta and Annie Fried were both somewhat successful singers in Sweden as well before meeting their respective husbands. Eventually, once both guys left their groups, the four began collaborating in earnest, mostly on music by Benny and Bjorn, having some success in Sweden before beginning in the early 70s to operate as a foursome under the name Bjorn and Benny, Agneta and Annie Fried. As a group, they scored their first minor breakthrough hit in Sweden in 1972 called People Need Love, and then an even bigger hit in that country the following year with Ring Ring, a song which began to crystallize what would become the ABBA sound. Taking 1960s pop styles like Phil Spector's Wall of Sound and the Beach Boys' stacked choral arrangements and revamping them with the pristine studio innovations of the 1970s, all anchored by Benny and Bjorn's preternatural hook and melody writing abilities, Frida and Agneta's otherworldly intertwining multi-layered lead vocals, and a decidedly Swedish take on the English language. The group had their first real international arrival, however, in 1974, when they entered the song Waterloo, a playful take on British glam rock which hilariously compares a woman falling in love to Napoleon's greatest battlefield defeat into the Eurovision Song Contest and won. Waterloo's success in Eurovision introduced the group to a worldwide audience and quickly became a top 10 smash across the globe peaking at number one in the UK, number six here in America, and instantly establishing ABBA as perhaps the most successful Swedish musical act of all time. Waterloo's success sent ABBA on a nearly unprecedented, dizzying run of indelible pop hits through the rest of the 1970s. They released their self-titled third album in 1975, which contained a murderer's row of pop classics like Mamma Mia, S.O.S., and I Do, I Do, I Do, I Do, I Do, further establishing ABBA's knack for infectious, shimmering pop standards. 
but it was their first Greatest Hits package released later that year that cemented ABBA as one of the decade's biggest acts, especially in Europe and Australia, where it became one of the most successful albums of all time and spawned the hit single Fernando, a wistful song that displayed a deepening emotional complexity in ABBA's work, where sparkling major key melodies would be increasingly interlaced with themes of longing, loss, and regret. The following year, ABBA released what is considered to be their commercial and artistic peak, their fourth album, Arrival. Arrival again marked an expansion in both ABBA's studio mastery, brimming with utterly pristine, multi-textured productions and arrangements, as well as their capacity to tackle darker adult themes in the context of sticky pop music often cannily drawn from the increasing marital strife between the group's married couples. Among the numerous titanic pop smashes featured on this album is the divorce anthem Knowing Me, Knowing You, the kitchen sink realism of Money, 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 and of course, the sheer exquisite transcendence of their ebullient pop masterpiece Dancing Queen, which hit number one in pretty much every country on God's green earth and stands today as their signature hit. ABBA continued to release music at a breathtaking pace through the middle and late 1970s. In 1977, they dropped the audacious ABBA The Album, which found them experimenting with more progressive rock elements and featured the hits Take a Chance on Me and The Name of the Game. While 1979's Voulez-Vous was their foray into American disco and spawned smashes like the title track and Chiquitita. Meanwhile, while ABBA was riding as high as any pop act could commercially, the marriages between both Bjorn and Agneta and Benny and Frida were each disintegrating behind the scenes. Instead of allowing this to break the group apart, however, ABBA increasingly put these difficult emotional experiences into their work. In 1980, they released their seventh studio album, Super Trooper, a record that dealt with the struggles of fame as well as the crumbling romantic relationships of the group's couples, and also featured some of their most gobsmacking musical production yet, like on the futuristic 80s synth-pop presaging Lay All Your Love On Me. Super Trooper's lead single, The Winner Takes It All, a song about divorce and the complicated emotional politics and fallout at the end of a long-term relationship, became one of the group's biggest hits ever, peaking at number one in numerous countries and number eight on the Hot 100. ABBA released one more album, 1981's experimental The Visitors, before somewhat unofficially disbanding so that the girls could pursue solo careers and the guys could make forays into musical theater. Just after their prodigious run of success, though, ABBA faced a pretty intense cultural backlash, often derided as pop fluff, vapid, formulaic music that had been graciously replaced with the more serious pop and rock of the 80s. However, beginning in the mid-1990s with the release of their greatest hits album, ABBA Gold, which has gone on to sell over 30 million copies worldwide, and the smash hit musical and film Mamma Mia in the 2000s and 2010s, ABBA has experienced a massive cultural reassessment and has rightfully taken its place as one of the most revered pop acts in history. 40 years after The Visitors, ABBA released their ninth studio album, Voyage, in 2021, which topped the charts across the world and was nominated for a Grammy. 
ABBA are among the best-selling recording artists of all time, with estimates of 385 million records sold worldwide. They are both the best-selling Swedish and European band of all time. They have 10 number one albums in the UK and nine number one singles there. Here in the US, they've had nine top 20 hits, four top tens, and one number one. Their effect on the sound and shape of pop is widely noted by both critics and artists alike, having been cited as an influence by musicians as far ranging as The Who, U2, Max Martin, Madonna, and countless more. In 2010, ABBA was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the only act from outside an English-speaking country to ever achieve this honor. Here with me on the podcast to talk the work and career of the great ABBA is one of the world's premier ABBA historians, Carl Magnus Palm. All right, so I am here with Carl Magnus Palm. Carl is an ABBA historian who has written, I think I have this right, Carl, eight books on ABBA? Yeah, I, I think it's eight. I've lost count, but I, 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 I will. I will assume that's correct. Yeah. So we're here not just with the guy who wrote the book on ABBA, but the guy who has written all the books on ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, I am so happy to have you on the podcast today. We obviously are focused on pop. We're focused on pop stars. We love to trace back the history of pop music through various pop stars' careers and. I think there may be no more superlative pop acts, maybe no more pristine representation of what we think of as pop music than ABBA. Do you concur with that? Absolutely. No arguments for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think this will be a really instructional episode of the podcast because, as I mentioned, it's like when we think about pop music and we think about it in its purest form, we think about this group and... They're really fascinating because I also think that they mean different things in different parts of the world. Like I, for instance, grew up, I was familiar with the hits, but I think they mean something a little bit different in America than they mean in different parts of the world. And obviously, Americans' relationship to pop music is a lot different to people in Sweden or people in Europe. And I think all the different push and pulls between how pop is conceived in culture, the way it's criticized in various cultures differently, the way it's like looked down upon as lowbrow or accepted as a legitimate art form sort of like plays out in ABBA's career as pertains to like their success in various parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I think you're correct. Yeah. It'll be interesting to explore that. Yeah, for sure. So before we get into the chronology and discussing all the various aspects of ABBA's career, there's sort of a lot of focus. And I was thinking about this a lot as I was listening back through their music about like what exactly the ABBA sound is. So like if we are going to take the premise that ABBA is the purest distillation of quote unquote pop music, how would you describe ultimately looking back at their entire body of work, like what are the sort of central tenets to what the ABBA sound is? If you ask them, during one of my earliest interviews with Benny Anderson, way back in the 1990s, he said, without me asking him, that if you're talking about concepts like the ABBA sound, of course it's the way we wrote the songs and arranged them, it's the way they were recorded by their engineer, Michael Tretto, who's an important part of the process, but he said, if you take away the girls' voices, then you don't really have the ABBA sound. So they define the sound itself very much. It's a multi-layered sound, isn't it? It's bringing the aesthetics, if you will, of classic Phil Spector recordings with the Ronettes, the Crystals, and all those people. And Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys.
that into the 1970s and the more hi-fi, if you will, <laughs> approach that was possible by that time, which wasn't really possible back in the 60s. And taking good care of each element, that's not a very neat description of the sound, but that's as, no, that's as no, good no, as no. I can make it, yeah. <laughs> it's really helpful because I often think that good pop music is able to suck in various other subgenres and filter them through a certain lens of whatever like pop is or whatever the sound of that pop act is. And as I was listening back through ABBA's music, I felt really strongly that they're a perfect representation of that. It's like whether they're making a sort of Phil Spector wall of sound nod, or I feel like a lot of their music weirdly presaged arena rock of the 80s, or, you know, nodding towards the Beach Boys or the Beatles or to disco or whatever it is. It all somehow still feels like ABBA. Like it all still feels like they're filtering these various aesthetics through their own very particular lens and that to me is like one of the hallmarks of a great pop act where it's like yes no matter what kind of subgenre we're attempting to explore in one particular song or album like it still manages to come out sounding like ABBA I feel like that's a real strong way to think about like how their sound was defined yeah no no I, I agree completely it's, that's what they did you know when they did disco it was disco ABBA style if you will it didn't sound like your generic disco if you will like if you went to the United States and you had a look at what people were doing at that time and if you listen to ABBA's quote-unquote disco tracks they didn't really sound like them but they borrowed elements from them and then they put their own stamp on it so absolutely I, I agree completely yeah and the other thing that I thought was interesting as I was kind of going back and just reading some more contemporary reflections on them was this quote I read from Simon Goddard, who wrote a retrospective review of Arrival and Pitchfork. And I was curious about your take on this as sort of like a fundamental tenant of the ABBA sound. And, and I think we think of them, as I said, looking back as a celebration of the frivolity of pop music without maybe necessarily needing to laden themselves with too much of having to have rock cred or something like that. But he was quoted as saying, at their best as on Arrival, ABBA are as mysteriously out there as Bowie, as Rococo as Phil Spector, and as unbearably sad as the Smiths. At the center of their infinitely bright star is a throbbing mass of black pain. <laughs> Do you relate to that as a thought? Yeah, no, I, I agree. If ABBA had been what people said at the time, some right. people said at the time right. that they were, that they were only, you know, happy-go-lucky, superficial pop, and it was written in five minutes, and according to a formula, without any emotional content... Right then we <laughs> wouldn't have become as big as it became and we wouldn't be talking about them like you and I are doing now today. It is because it has that underlying sadness in some of it. Well, most of it, actually. And the contrast yes. between the sadness and the joy all the time in the best ABBA songs, that was very uh, astute of him. Yeah, not to mention that they're an inflection point in the great Swedish history of pop music. There's such a rich history of Swedish pop that deals with the agony and ecstasy of the dance floor, the agony and ecstasy of life in general. I think about Robin's dancing on my own as a, you know, modern example of what ABBA did. Both a catharsis and a sad thing that all exists in the context of a night out or of trying to find 
peace and happiness like in a frivolous pop setting or something like that and the sadness that pulls at you at the same time yeah i mean just that title dancing on my own i mean it doesn't really get yeah. any sadder than that does it <laughs> it's like a hundred percent a hundred percent so in that regard i do think abba also tacks on to a lot of like changing attitudes about pop music over the past 40 years, 50 years, where they were viewed one way in their peak era. They had a big sort of like cultural reassessment in the 90s. They obviously had another big cultural assessment with the musical. I think they're viewed differently in the quote unquote post-poptimist era. So I think that it'll be interesting for us to use them as a lens through which to track changing attitudes about pop music over the course of this conversation. Before we get into all of that, I do want to take a beat with you, rewind and talk a little bit about Sweden and about Sweden's relationship to pop music because obviously as i was hinting at earlier sweden has been and continues to be one of the central nexus points of this genre whether you're talking about abba whether you're talking about dennis pop whether you're talking about max martin whether you're talking about robin whoever you're talking about there some of the greatest pop music in history has come out of this small country that's always been something that's really intrigued me what is sort of like the history of pop music or its antecedents in sweden and why do you think culturally, historically, the country has been such a huge nesting ground for the genre? I think even back in the 50s and certainly the 1960s, we kind of absorbed what was going on in the United States and in the UK in terms of pop music quite a lot. And I know that people looking back, people who are into 1960s music, garage bands or pop bands or whatever that were around at the time, Sweden's 1960s pop scene is highly regarded among those connoisseurs. So obviously there was something going on even in the 1960s. regarded as a pop band in Sweden in the 1960s, you had to sing in English. If you sang in Swedish, you weren't pop or rock or anything like that. You were easy listening and, you know, schlager, this German word that we use to signify anything that wasn't rooted in traditional English or American pop, basically. Can you describe what schlager is exactly? Yeah, it's a German word. It means hit song, basically. That's what it means. But I would say in ABBA's lifetime and in the decades leading up to ABBA forming and in ABBA's lifetimes, so we're talking from the early 50s and throughout the 70s, basically, it referred to anything that wasn't rooted in American rhythm and blues, wasn't blues-based, didn't have like I a see. rock feeling, that more harder-edged thing. So it could be anything from your typical German schlager, which is like, you know, oompa boompa things, or very saccharine. It could be the French chanson ballads, you know, this kind of dramatic, <laughs> you know. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rond. 
it could be more Italian dramatic folk ballads and people sing with passion. So all of those influences, plus the influences from Swedish folk music and Swedish melody-based, nice, if you will, songs. That's what we meant by Schlager during those decades, right? So that influence, obviously, that was a big influence on ABBA. That's so important. If you want to understand the roots of ABBA and their music, you have to understand that they didn't just listen to American and British pop music or rock music. They listened to all kinds of stuff and they grew up, most importantly, with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it could be, I don't know if you're familiar with old American 50s hits like Tennessee Waltz. I remember the night and the Tennessee Waltz. Now I know just how much I have lost. There are a lot of American songs from the 1950s that were classified as schlager here, and I think they were classified as pop hits, basically, in the United States. It's kind of hard to define it exactly. Like with all great music, it takes influences from everywhere, you know. It's all these bits and pieces. So speaking of ABBA, I'd love to rewind a bit and talk about how they came together, the origin stories of the four members and how this group came into being because there's almost like, at least in my research, a 10 plus year musical history split between the four of them before they come together as ABBA as we know them in the 70s. And Carl, I want to offer apologies in advance for how many Swedish words and names I'm going to mispronounce <laughs> on this. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I really tried to play them in like Google Trends and stuff like that like some of them I'm gonna struggle with so I really apologize I I mean no disrespect Um, (laughs) so can you maybe just first start by telling us who the four members of ABBA are and what their origin stories or their backstories are just briefly Mm -hmm. the oldest member in ABBA is Bjorn Olveus who was born in April 1945 he became nationally famous in 1963 when he was only 18 years old in a folk group called wait for it the Hootenanny Singer I can't. Uh, I can't even believe that that was the name. (laughs) They always hated that name. They didn't choose it for themselves. The record company chose it for them, and they always hated that name. So they started out as a folk group. They were inspired by American folk music, and that's what they wanted to play. But then the record company, and you know, they went along with it, obviously. They did more like Swedish folk music, and then they drifted into more Schlager type or, you know, pop hits, things like that. And then you have Benny Anderson, who was born in 1946. He also started with music, you know, as a very young guy. He became professional when he was 18 or something, 17, 18. Became very famous in the mid-60s with a band called the Hep Stars, who started out playing kind of rock music and then drifted into more like Beatles-style pop. She's domestic, she's property, she's like Reed. She's diverting, she is faithful, ain't that all? 
and then also ended up in a kind of schlager pop area towards the end of their career when they ended in 1969. And then you have Frida, Annie Friedlingstad, who was born in 1945, who started very young. They all started very young. She was like 13 when she started singing with a dance band and the kind of music she did for the first 10 years or so of her career was more like, I mean there was schlager and it was like light pop hits of the day and old American standards, you know, like, you know, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, Rodgers and Hart and all that kind of repertoire. Fleetfoot, let your soul So she didn't really start with what we term pop until she got together with Benny. And then you have Agneta, who was born in 1950. So Ag- she... say, sorry, say it one more time, say it one more time. I want to make uh, sure I can uh, say it correctly. Well, the, 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 the correct Swedish pronunciation is Agneta. But you're not... Agneta. Agneta, yeah. That's ballpark enough. Very good. Very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really want to do it well. No, no, that was good. That was actually quite good. I've heard much worse, believe me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so she sure. also started with music at a very young age. And the interesting thing with Agneta is that she started writing her own songs when she was six years old or something. Oh, that's interesting, considering that she never wrote with them. Yeah, exactly. And she broke through in 1968. She was only 17 at the time. And her first single was a song she had written herself. Jag var så kär is the Swedish title. It translates as I was so in love. She had written that herself and it went to number one in Sweden. So if you think back to the 1960s, I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of this, but at the time there weren't many successful female songwriters, let's put it that way. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. And they weren't 17 years old and they weren't in Sweden. So she was a pioneer. I mean, she was from a not exactly a small town, but she didn't grow up in Stockholm or anything. So the fact that she did this and that she succeeded is really mind-boggling in a way the taylor swift of her day yeah yeah exactly you know uh (laughs) 55 years ago or something now that's really incredible so she became a star so how did benny and bjorn start making music together because that happens before the girls come in to play right Mm -hmm. they meet up in 1966 when both groups are out touring in the summer of 1966 and they happen to meet up and they have this party together and there's a connection between them immediately they discuss songwriting because benny was basically the only guy in the Hepstars who was interested in songwriting. And the same went for Bjorn in the Hootenand singers. Are they super successful in these groups? Like, how do we measure their oh, success oh, absolutely. at that point? I mean, the Hepstars is the biggest pop group of the 1960s in Sweden. Oh, it's like, wow. Oh, it, I did it, not realize that. Okay, so they're like, he's like a big star already. Oh, oh, absolutely. So it's like the Hepstars and then the Hepstars and then the Hepstars and then someone else, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're huge, absolutely huge. And the Hootenand singers are very 
very big as well. Mm-hmm. And they have both written songs and both, I think, are aware that they have written songs that have been recorded. So, oh, we should try to write a song together sometime. And then, you know, just a couple <laughs> of weeks after this party, they get that opportunity. So they write their first song together. It's a song called Isn't It Easy To Say, which the Hep Stars recorded later that year. Isn't it easy to say I'll go my way Am I the first one to pray That she will stay Then they didn't write so much for a couple of years, but in 1968 they start writing songs together again and then they were often running with that. They have like a partnership and they get along as people, they get along as friends and they want to work together. So that's how that happened. It's interesting because I remember when I did my Max Martin episode with John Seabrook from The New Yorker, he was talking about like one of the tenets of Swedish pop and the reason why it is so special and good is because like unlike in America where like in our hyper-capitalist society, there's this need to be in front and have your name in the credits and be the sole auteur of a pop song. You want to be the sole songwriter and blah, 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 blah. But there's kind of this collaborative spirit within the Swedish recording industry that maybe is rooted in some of the country's socialist past. Like Max Martin, for instance, is known for like how willing he is to throw anybody in the mix. He'll have seven songwriters work on a song and have one person make the bass line and one person make the drum line. And he's also such kind of like a reclusive figure in general. Like he's never needed to have that sort of American need for fame and recognition and being this auteur in this way. No, I, no. I was, That always just stuck with me in that. And I wonder thinking about the two of them being so willing to join forces is that kind of in that tradition yeah no i i think that's correct it's more like okay to achieve the best result with this song that we're working on what do we need to do oh so you have that great idea okay then we'll do that we bring that in it doesn't matter who does what the important thing is that it gets to be good at the end so it's not about someone you know snorting cocaine and being high on his (laughs) you know super ego you know i'm the i'm the king here in the studio And I decided that would never take precedence, certainly not forever, because they didn't use cocaine, you know. So, very straight edge. Yeah. And and also, I think what you're saying speaks to something that plays out in a lot of their music, which is that, like, they work on these songs over and over again until they get them right. Like, every single song that you get through in their discography goes through so many iterations, and they pick them up, they put them down. Like, they're never happy until they've unlocked the perfect version of whatever they're trying to create. Exactly. An interesting thing is that before ABBA started, Bjorn and Benny, who had already been pop stars in the 1960s, so they'd already gone through that. They had done, you know, a thousand shows in Sweden or whatever. They were done with that. So they envisioned a future as songwriters, as producers. In other words, they were trying to be Max Martin, if you will. Right, but this right. group emerged, so that's why they are members of ABBA, but they might as well not have been. Right, they might not have even been on stage in some instances because no, no, the no, girls are such no, the focal no. point. They could have been a writer-producer team behind these two girls, but right. it turned out that they became ABBA because that was a good combination of people. It was a good way to present themselves. A hundred percent, and also obviously like the husband-wife, husband-wife thing was too yeah. good of a brand hook to leave behind. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. they have these early songs. There was an album that they made, Benny and Bjorn, called Laika, right? Mm -hmm. I was listening to one song and I will, I'm so sorry, I have no idea how to pronounce this. It's Hezg 
Gamel Man, something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, hey, Gamle Man. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, it's that all one right. Thing that... It's all right. You, I mean, I'm, you, I get some entertainment here, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that jumped out to me about that song was that choral vibe that became such a definitive aspect of ABBA's music. I could hear that on that song. That sort of like stacking of vocal recordings in unison. Mm-hmm. Hey, Gamle Man. Yeah, and that's a very good point because that was the first recording that the four of them appeared on. It was a Bjorn and Benny right. single and, and a Bjorn and Benny album track, so the girls weren't credited, but they were singing backing vocals. And when that became a hit, that was something where they felt, wow, okay, so this combination, the four of us, is actually quite good. It's something to latch on to, something maybe we could develop in some way. So absolutely, and it's a kind of Salvation Army song, and that's why they brought in the girls, because they wanted to have that kind of Salvation Army feel to it. What's a Salvation Army song? <laughs> it's a song sung by the Salvation <laughs> but you know, it's it's that that kind of umba, umba, you know, that kind of uh-huh. joyful religious type song. Relentlessly upbeat. I wrote in my yes. notes. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's accurate. That's accurate. So I guess maybe just quickly rewinding: How do they each meet their wives, and then how do they decide to start recording with them? Right. So in 1969, the Hep Stars are on tour. They're performing at this venue, and in in the same town in the south of Sweden, Frida is also performing with another group. And they happen to meet up late one night in a restaurant. You know, showbiz people do. After the show, they go out to have a drink. There's a connection there. And then within a month, maybe, it develops into a romance. And then they're a couple. They're an item. A couple of months after that, Bjorn and Agneta, they are part of the same television special, which is recorded on the west coast of Sweden. It's kind of outdoor scenes and stuff like that. And they met like a year before. But this time the romance starts during the taping of that television special (laughs) and they move in together pretty quickly after that as do Benny and Frida so by the summer of 1969 you have these two couples so you have these two songwriters Bjorn and Benny and you have these two romantic couples and everyone is in show business or you know the music business and then the following year in 1970 they do this cabaret show together the four of them that's the first thing they do as a group which is a complete disaster. Uh, They sing their songs, but they have to do funny stuff and skits and things like that. It just doesn't suit them. It's like, no, 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 no. This is what we should not be doing. some tension there between them you know they don't really know each other that well yet they go out on a tour with this show and it kind of gets conflicts and stuff then if we jump forward to the spring of 1972 when we're recording this it's almost exactly 50 years ago that oh, they wow. yeah Bjorn and Benny and Stig Anderson who was Abbas manager and who was the head of their record company Polar Music he had recognized that Bjorn and Benny were really great songwriters and he felt that the songs that they write are just as good as the songs that they write in the United States and 
the United Kingdom and wherever else. There's no reason right. why we shouldn't be able to reach outside the Swedish borders with this music. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 1972, Bjorn and Benny had this idea. We should write a pop song in English because they hadn't done that for a few years. And they're fluent English speakers. Well, uh, f- <laughs> not not exactly fluent, <laughs> but good enough. The lack of fluency is what creates some of the most memorable ABBA lines, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they're just you know. to the left of like a normal English idiot. Yeah. Like you get what they're trying to say, but it's not exactly how you would say it if you were a native English speaker. Exactly. So they write this song, People Need Love, and they decide to record it with Anietta and Frida as a kind of call and response kind of thing. The boys Mm -hmm. sing in the verses, and then the next verse, the girls sing, and then they come together in the chorus. So they record that at the end of March 1972, and then that becomes kind of a hit in Sweden. Not a big hit, but big enough for them to feel like, oh, maybe we should pursue this. Maybe we should try to record some more songs with this group in this constellation. Plus, of course, I mean, this is what Bjorn and Benny want to do. They don't want to write all these Swedish schlager stuff. They want to do credible pop music in English and try to make it abroad if possible. And that's a novel concept in the Swedish music scene at that point, to have such international aspirations. I think so. You know, we've had a few groups who've had like one or two hits or, you know, the odd hit but I don't think anyone has ever been like let's try to do this let's try to make it abroad that was the first time when anyone in the Swedish music business was really making a go at international success yeah exactly yeah so Ring Ring comes soon after that too right yeah that was like a year later in early 1973 Are these prototypical ABBA songs to you, or do they sound still pretty far removed from the quote-unquote ABBA sound as we know it? Ring Ring is the first one where you can hear, okay, these guys are onto something, they're trying to create something new, something special, something individual that's unique to them, because this is where they really try to do something interesting with the backing track and recording the same instruments twice and changing the speeds Mm. between the overdub, and they have these multi-layered, stacking the girls' voices over and over and over again to get this full, rich sound. making it like a big lump of sound. A wall of sound, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. A wall of sound. Because for that particular recording, they were inspired by the recording techniques of Phil Spector in particular. You know, it's like specifically trying to do Phil Spector, but in Sweden in 1973. So 
would you describe that song as like a homage to Phil Spector? Like how would you describe the aesthetic of Ring Ring exactly? It's a kind of European version of Phil Spector because most of the time he had R&B vocalists, you know, he had African American right. vocalists who had their kind of inflection and their kind of tradition from doo-wop or whatever else they were coming from. Yes. Whereas <laughs> You know, Agneta and Frida, they are very European, very Swedish, yes. very Nordic. <laughs> yeah. So right. I, I would say it's Phil Spector in Europe, basically. It also gave me a little surf rock vibe, kind of. It has that. That's part of what ABBA did, I think, is that they went back to the hits of the early to mid-60s and brought them into a 1970s recording environment, if you will. Right. So it, that's what it is, basically. The innocence of that period and then bringing it into the more sophisticated 1970s. And this is also the moment where the name ABBA comes into play, right? Yeah, because they were uh, even Ring Ring was released under this impossible name of Bjorn and Benny, uh, Agneta and Frida, you know, it's just like, what? <laughs> uh, because it was... That's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it is a mouthful. And if you want to make it abroad, it's not going to cut it because you, no one can pronounce Agneta and no one knows what to do with those two dots in Bjorn as it's pronounced, if you want to pronounce it correctly. Yeah. So it was basically their manager who took the first names of all the four members, A for Agneta and B for Bjorn and B for Benny and A for Anifrid, mm -hmm. moved them around and he came up with ABBA just as a joke because there's a Swedish canned fish factory that's very big and very famous <laughs> and they're called ABBA and obviously the group nothing worked. more Swedish than canned fish yeah exactly yeah you know yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely a Swedish specialty you love your canned fish we do we do guilty as charged and, uh, <laughs> me too yeah and then they said or at least Bjorn and Benny said you know is that a good name for a pop group you know are people going to think about canned fish when they hear our music <laughs> and their manager Stiggy said well you know if that's only in Sweden and we're gonna be a right hit. nobody oh. else is gonna know what that yeah. is yeah <laughs> yeah and it's a perfect name you know so it speaks to their international ambition oh absolutely if you think about it it's it's a name you can say in any language genius global yeah market. yeah okay so obviously a huge inflection point for them is the song Waterloo and Eurovision so I just thought maybe we could take a quick beat about what Eurovision is in Europe prior to Waterloo and like why they see that as an important goal for them to achieve because I know both Benny and Bjorn I believe had each submitted songs to Eurovision in the past and hadn't gotten in is that right? Yeah they had submitted songs as a team before that that didn't enter right. you know, Melody Festival and which is the Melody Festival which is the Swedish heats if you will for the Eurovision Song Contest I mean they had all tried in various ways to enter it before that Eurovision started in Europe in the mid 50s and it's just this television show and it's kind of snappy catchy hits or uh, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s now and early 70s yeah. or it was dramatic ballads almost always performed by solo performers many of the songs there became huge hits it was kind of a good launching pad if you wanted a career in Europe basically for some artists I should say not for everyone yes. the reason ABBA was so eager to get on there was because there was such a resistance globally especially in the UK and in the United States and places like that towards Swedish pop right. music. Why would we want Swedish pop music? We're perfectly 
capable of producing pop music ourselves right. in these countries sure. as indeed all of you were. So I think it was Stig Anderson's philosophy basically that if you can get a song onto Eurovision and then you have several hundred million viewers all over Europe, if the song is good enough, if the performance is good enough, then it won't matter if you win or not because people are going to hear this song and then they're mm. going to vote with their feet, they're going to go to the record shop and say, oh, can I get this record please? So that would be a good way to make yourself seen and known. So mm. that was their goal so that's why it was so important to them. And then what happened, they tried with Ring Ring but they didn't win the Swedish Heats and then in 1974 sure. they were fortunate with Waterloo in the Swedish Heats and they went all the way to the finals obviously and they didn't even expect to win. They thought right. the exposure is what is important here and they dressed up in these crazy glam rock costumes. Yeah, the costumes know. are so, <laughs> I have yeah. to say if you haven't watched this, it is absolutely hilarious camp to the absolute max yeah. the costumes that they're all in. And they were meant to be, you know, they wanted to be seen and to remember. They wanted to make a splash because up to that point, most of the performers you saw in the Eurovision Song Contest, which was a very nice and pleasant middle-of-the-road type contest, the ladies would be wearing evening gowns and mm. the men would be dressed up in tuxedos or something like that. Nice, low-key costumes. And here comes sure. this group from our to space or something and <laughs> with a rock song of the type you hadn't really heard in the Eurovision Song Contest before they made a splash and it made all the difference for them and we move now across into Sweden the largest of the Scandinavian countries and although we're looking at streets it's a country full of mountains lakes and forests and of course it's full of blonde Vikings and uh, this is one of the reasons why it's good for pictures these are the ABBA group born Frida Anna, who's just beside her with the long blonde hair, and Benny. Uh, if you can work that out, that's why they're called Abbott, because in fact it's Benny born Annie Fried and Anna. They made their first record in 1972, and uh, if all the judges were men, which they're not, I'm sure this group would get a lot of votes. You'll see why in a minute. The song is called, oh, and it's Napoleon. Napoleon, no wonder their song is called Waterloo. This is Sven Olaf Waldorf, who's really entered into the spirit of it all, dressed as Napoleon, waiting for Waterloo by ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. Not many people knew who they were. After Eurovision, everyone knew who they were in Europe. And because the song became such a big hit, it was in all these European countries, including the United States, where it went to number one. It was so much easier for Stig Anderson to come to America and say, hey, look, this, <laughs> this song, song is, is a big is hit a in the UK. Yeah. Do you think it could work in the United States? And someone thought it could be, it could work. And then all of a sudden they have a record contract in the United States as well. And in Australia, all these places where Eurovision 
transition didn't mean a thing. Is Waterloo a click moment in as we are tracking it, the ABBA sound? Like, is this a moment where something emerges or something falls into place that helps them on their path to sort of their distinctive ABBA thing? I mean, it's obviously the next step falling on from Ring Ring in that it's still Phil Spector aesthetics, but you're marrying yes. it together with British glam rock of the early 1970s. There was a group called Wizard. They had a number one hit in the UK called See My Baby Jive in 1973. If you listen to that and then you listen to Waterloo, you will see that there are kind of similarities. It's not like they've stolen anything from that, but it's the same kind of song. They sound even more confident, I guess, on Waterloo. They're on the right path. And this thing with harmony singing and strong melodies and lots of pianos and keyboards and stuff like that, that's the way for them to go. Also, the concept of the song is just so hilarious. Like, the idea of comparing a woman surrendering to her like love for a man as Napoleon surrendering at Waterloo is just the campiest, most hilarious idea for a pop song. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird. It is a bit oddball. And that's all about Stig Anderson, their manager and sometime lyricist, you know. He knew that da, 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 that was going to be mm -hmm. the hook. So that's where the title should be. He needed to find a word that would work internationally, not just in the UK and the United States, but that it could be familiar to people in France and West Germany and Italy and Holland or wherever. So he found this in a book of familiar quotations. He found, okay, Waterloo, oh, that could work, and then try to build something around <laughs> that. It starts the great ABBA tradition of making historical references in pop songs. Like Fernando is also, I think, about like a historical figure mm -hmm. of some sort. Mm -hmm. Like they do enjoy that motif. It's such a funny like product of that time period. Like you're not thinking about like Dua Lipa making a song about the Battle of the Bulge or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just such a funny conceit. No, that would never happen, I don't think. No, and, uh, but that's also, you know, Abba, they still had a foot in the Schlager tradition at the time, you know? It was right. like nice pop hits and the lyrics weren't really that important. It was just words to sing and it could be about anything, really. It's just about something that can carry the melody forward, basically. Right, which is not to keep bringing him up, but that's such a huge Max Martin thing. Like, the whole idea of melodic math is the idea that, like, the actual words you're saying are so much less important than, like, the way they fit into the melody and deliver the melody. In some ways, having English as a second language is a freeing attribute. They didn't need to be Bob Dylan. The focus on the melody, they didn't have sort of the constraints of it needing to be poetry. No, and also it becomes an identifying factor, you know? It becomes something yeah. that sets them apart. Okay, Waterloo becomes this massive international breakout for them. As you said, it breaks them not even just across Europe, but also becomes a number one hit in America. They release a record that same year with the same title that doesn't produce another hit as huge as Waterloo? No, it doesn't. No, it, Honey Honey is the single and it yeah. doesn't become huge in the way that Waterloo was, no. Right, and so they move very quickly onto their third album, which is self-titled, which features a series of superlative ABBA songs, namely S.O.S., Mamma Mia, and I Do, I Do, I Do... 
How does the sound evolve on these hits? And how would you describe the evolution of ABBA from Waterloo to their self-titled third record? On the third record, and specifically on those songs you mentioned, that's where they arrive at what ABBA are supposed to be, what their strengths are, what they should play to, and what they should avoid. What's really successful on that album is Mamma Mia, is SOS. And Mamma Mia, yeah. in particularly, I think, and I think they themselves... Benny said he described it as a eureka moment because mm. that song is maybe the first or one of the first ABBA songs that is kind of fully arranged. Everyone is playing exactly what they're supposed to be playing. The guitar isn't doing anything on his own. It's like, okay, you play this and you play that. And then in the chorus, we pull everything away except the piano and the strings and the vocals. and then we bring them back in after half the, the chorus. There's something going on all the time and it's fully arranged, basically. By fully, I mean in every detail, every aspect of the song, every part of the song has been carefully thought out. So that's the kind of watershed. And when those instruments drop out on the chorus, you really get the effect of the choral arrangement of the girls' yeah. voices too, which is obviously such a huge signature. Exactly. And they also realize, well, the girls should be singing right. and right. the boys should not be singing, you know, so much. It's, it's like where they kind of realize that, okay, this is where we should be heading. All right. So let's also zoom in on the other kind of monster hit from this album, which is SOS, which also feels like kind of a giant aha moment for them. So when you This song gives me massive Beach Boys vibes. Yeah, that kind of rich backing vocal layer, the harmony vocals mm -hmm. that they did comes very much from the Beach Boys. And of course, Brian Wilson could be melancholy with the best of them. So of that kind of sadness that you could hear in many of his songs, like whine equality. And I, I you know, whine, it sounds negative, but I mean it in a positive way in this yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can hear that in Agneta's performance as well in, in her lead vocal on that. And it's another song I think that's quintessentially ABBA in the sense that it's kind of about framing a relationship or framing a crush or whatever, like in these kind of like desperate, lonely, sad terms over this very bright melody. Oh, absolutely. That's the great thing. Well, one of the many great things about ABBA is this, you know, happy, sad thing <laughs> that's going on. It's just, yeah. There's so much energy in the music all the time. So even the sad songs sound kind of happy in a weird way. It's like the relentless joy 
actually adds to the sadness. It almost feels like somebody who's reaching towards joy. The exaggerated joy feels desperate in its own way. It's about, you know, oh God, I'm so sad. I don't want to feel sad. I want to bring myself out exactly. of this. What can I do? <laughs> I feel like that's such a important subterranean layer of like what makes these ABBA songs so special to me. Oh, absolutely. These songs are massive successes. How does this third record change how ABBA is perceived globally in various markets? Like where do they stand after the third record in a cultural sense? I'm not sure the album changes the perception so much, right. but the singles, SOS and Mamma Mia, they are what people sit up and take notice. You know, people who had sort of dismissed them as Eurovision one-hit wonders, you know, really, okay, these guys are actually taking the music seriously. They're serious about what they're doing. It's pop music. It's not introspective rock, but it's pop right. music of the highest order. So it's a watershed for themselves in terms of how they record stuff, but it's also a watershed in how they are perceived. Pete Townsend of the Who, he, he's gone. I was you know, just going to bring this up. Yeah. yeah, he's going on and on and on, you know, over the years about how the SOS yeah. is the greatest pop song ever written. And people sit up and take notice. It, gone back to old press clippings and stuff like that and you can see that it's almost begrudging respect yeah. <laughs> I would say in the United States it was even more because they weren't tainted they didn't care about Eurovision they did, hardly knew what Eurovision was in your country right so I think right. many of the critics there they saw ABBA as a return to what rock and roll and pop was supposed to be about it wasn't mm. like, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin style rock gods or right. singer-songwriters who were maybe sometimes too introspective for their own good or, you know, people who were sort of self-indulgent. This is what it's supposed to be about, you know. It's Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, but Abba's yes. version of it. So many critics in the United States was like, wow, this is the greatest band on earth, you know. This is fantastic. And they, yeah. even more so with the third album. Was this sort of backlash brewing at this point? There was kind of this like growing sense of like, we shouldn't be liking this music. Is that evident in this period? Or are we still before that at this point? Oh, oh, absolutely. It was there from the start. It was peak ABBA hating <laughs> at that time. ABBA loving and ABBA hating. Somehow yeah. everybody hated them and yet they were the most successful, highest selling group. What an interesting paradox. <laughs> yeah, the only reason they were successful was because they had seduced the defenseless consumers right. with right. <laughs> with their factory. With their black magic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With their formula for pop music, which is obviously mm. so not how they worked, but hey. And I also I also think it plays into these raucous tropes as if like music by committee is somehow less valuable than some sort of auteur singer songwriter you know what I mean that if music yeah. produced with an eye towards creating the most broadly appealing thing isn't its own art form and only the thing that's art is somebody brooding and writing their personal experience in a poetic yeah. way like Bob Dylan or whatever I feel sorry for those people to be quite me honest. Too, you know, Carl, yeah. Me they're, too, Carl. Me too. They're missing out. <laughs> they're fewer. <laughs> um, so following the third record, they released this greatest hits package that becomes kind of their big establishing moment, I guess. A lot of people discover ABBA. They've heard them in their singles, but they just sort of discover a lot of their music through this early period greatest hits album that becomes, I think, one of the best-selling records in European history up to that point. And in between... The third record, the greatest hits record, and their fourth record, they release this single off the greatest hits album called Fernando. There was something
I feel like Fernando is obviously one of their superlative songs. Like, how would you describe Fernando? And one of the questions I want to ask in the context of Fernando is, how do they decide which of the girls sings lead vocal on which songs? Well, in this case, Fernando was written for a solo album that Frida was doing, a Swedish language solo right. album. So it wasn't written for ABBA. Mm-hmm. So she was always going to sing it, obviously. In the other instances, and I've asked them about this, and they claim that, okay, Agneta, she's had three songs on this album so far, and Frida's only had two. So, okay, so next song must be her. That was so it's just a democratic process. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. Sometimes you feel like, oh, this is a typical Frida song, or this is, oh, this is obviously for Agneta. When you listen to them now, it sounds so self-evident, but they claim that it could have been the other way around just as easily. What are their different strengths, and are some of Frida's strengths evident on a song like Fernando? Like, how can we parse that out? I think Frida has this thing of being wistful. She did better wistful than Agneta did. Mm. And uh, Fernando is a kind of wistful song. It's like looking back, yes. kind of sad. It's at the same time, it's looking towards the future, you know, let's try to be happy again. Now we and Fernando Since many years I haven't seen a rifle in your head Can you hear the drums, Fernando? That's her qualities quite apart from being a note perfect singer. She's one of those who's always pitch perfect. Voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Agneta is more like. I feel like Agneta's more on some of the up tempo songs, right? Yeah, you may be right there. I think Agneta is more like a more intuitive singer almost. I mean, I right. wouldn't say that Frida is not an intuitive singer, but with Agneta, it's like an open book, mm. heart on your sleeve every time she opens her mouth. Right. And if you look at her songs, she has more of those, oh God, I'm so happy. I love this nothing I can do about anything it's just (laughs) my life is a complete mess and I'm desperate you know Whereas Frida's songs tend to be more about, if they're about broken hearts, it's more like, okay, knowing me, knowing you, there's nothing we can do. We just have to face it and move forward, basically. And when all is said and done, neither you nor I'm to blame. This is really sad. I'm unhappy, but I'm going to move forward. There's nothing to do. Whereas you get the sense with Agneta's performances and the songs she sings, that's not an option. It's like, please come back. Or Uh. I'm desperate. Give me, give me a man after midnight. I don't care about anything else. So they have these different qualities and then obviously when you put them together it becomes like this what people call the third voice it's another quality that becomes like a third aspect of vocal interpretation so in 1976 following the success of the greatest hits album following fernando's massive success they set about creating like what i think many people consider to be their commercial peak or at least in america was their commercial peak this fourth album arrival in 76 is there something different about the way they approach this record and if there is, how would you describe what that is exactly? Well, the previous album, the third album, you had Mamma Mia and SOS and a few other tracks that was like, okay, this is what ABBA is about. But then you had all these other stuff that was like all over the place. Right. I would say Arrival is the first true ABBA album if you want to define ABBA as we think of them today with the girls singing right. most of the songs and it's vocal harmonies stacked on top of each other. There are really no attempts to do all out rock. You have rock inflections, mm. obviously, but it's rock filtered through pop it comes out pop 
It may have started as rock, yes. but it comes out pop in the end. And it's one of those albums where almost every track could have been a single A-side and been a hit, I think. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. incredible. It's like one of the all-time pop classics. Yes, agreed. And it contains, obviously, their definitive song, Dancing Queen, which I think we should zero in on for a second. So there's been lots written about like the conception of this song and like how it came into being and how they were so clear on the fact that it was going to be a monster. Can you talk a little bit about how this song came together and describe what this song is exactly? Dancing Queen started out like all ABBA songs. It was Bjorn and Benny getting together and trying to write something. And maybe they were trying to write something dancey because I know that they usually use piano and acoustic guitar when they wrote together, but this time Bjorn was using an electric guitar for whatever reason. Mm. So maybe it was always going to be kind of rhythmic and percussive. I heard that they were very taken with Rock Your Baby by George McGray. Yeah. And that they were really interested in recreating that rhythmic feel. So they wrote the song and then the song could have been almost any type of arrangement but I think this was always meant to be a dance song because the working title for it was Boogaloo. Then they got together in the studio, they tried different ways of recording it but then they, they, okay, let's try to do a disco track even though that word was... I was going to ask, are they actively drawing on disco? I mean, they always had their ears to the ground in terms of what was going on in popular music in the UK and America and obviously they were aware of Rocky Baby because that was a big hit in the United States States, but I think it was a hit in Sweden as well and Europe. So yeah. that was a big hit in 1974. And now we're in the summer of 1975 when they're recording this. And they know that they want to have a kind of driving dance rhythm to it. So they played that record to kind of listen to it and say, how do they do this? You have to remember that up to this point, soul music African-American pop music, if you will, wasn't a big thing in Sweden. All the Motown hits that are classics all over the world, only a few of them were hits in this country. Right. And they acknowledge this is not the type of thing that we are used to making. We love this music, but we're not exactly sure how to do it. So they listen to Rocky Baby. The drum machine is doing this, and then there's this counter rhythm here. So, okay, so let's try to do something like that. And then they added all their own colors to that. So that's how that track yeah. was born. Simon Godard described it as club-footed disco American R&B as only could be made by white Vikings who didn't fully understand the instructions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's basically true, I think. That's what made it unique. They took a few elements from real disco, if you will, and then they married it to their own style of making pop music. And then you have something that sounds unique.
really do, and it really combines, I think, everything that we've been talking about, about what makes a quintessential ABBA song. It's like, you've got the Spectorian wall of sound aesthetics. You've got that choral, almost religious sounding vocal stacking. You've got the McCartney-esque kind of melody going on. It is disco, but it's ABBA more than it's disco. It's disco filtered through ABBA, which is what we were just talking about. And I think that's so many of the reasons why this is such the quintessential ABBA song for so yeah. many people. Not to mention, Carl, that it is the greatest song ever. It's like one of those songs that like is bigger than anything that we could ever describe about why it's so great. It's like one of those transcendent pop records that's hard to even describe why it's so perfect, but it is. You are the In my profession, and my profession being an ABBA historian, I've been doing this for 30 years now. So you can imagine that I've heard Dancing Queen a number of times. And I've heard <laughs> it on third generation VHS video recordings from some television special in Germany where the sound is crap. And I've right. heard it over and over and over. And I'm still not tired of it. I still no, enjoy never. it. I still get a buzz out of it every time I hear it. I think I still marvel at it. One of the greatest songs ever created, for sure. And it is a pop song more than a disco song. Bjorn will be the first to tell you that it's too slow to dance to. There's disco going on out there, and maybe we can use some ingredients from that, and then we'll have Benny's piano and all these classical music influences and for Swedish folk music influences and Schlager influences, and it becomes this thing that's just unique to ABBA. Which is what pop music is at its core, I think. The way ABBA would democratically dole out roles in creating the songs, pop music in its greatest form is able to be like, I'm going to take this from disco and this from R&B and this from Phil Spector and put it all into a giant soup. Like the best parts or the most necessary parts of each thing as needed for this particular project and have a non-fealty to genre in that sense and be like, here's how we're going to mash this together into the most perfect iteration of our vision. And I think that that's what makes Dancing Queen like maybe the superlative pop record or one of the top 10 most superlative pop records ever created. What's your take on the sort of like, is this a sad song or is this a happy song? <laughs> I think it's a little bit irritating when like critical community has to be like, it has to be sad in order to be credible. You know what I mean? Like there's kind of this take on girls just want to have fun. It has to be, have a sad undertone and it can't just be like a joy bomb and that's it, enough. Yeah, you know? no, no I, I agree completely with you on that. It's that phrase that people bring out from time to time, you know, it's actually very dark you know yeah. about anything it's like is that supposed to make it better you can put together the worst crap and say oh it's dark and then you're supposed right. to be like respectful of it when actually it's not very good <laughs> whereas music for instance that's designed to make us happy and just happy and be like you said a joy bomb it's not enough that it's a joy bomb I can maybe I can hear some of that melancholy maybe for me because like I said I've heard Dancing Queen a million times and it's come back yeah. to me people saying things about it people writing about the things about it you know when people say things oh there's a bit of sadness in there so okay oh yeah maybe it is but if I'm completely honest when I listen to Dancing Queen I don't think oh this is so sad no you know, me neither I just, I just get 100% uplifted and feel like wow you know life is worth living after all I agree it's life affirming the minute you hear that sliding piano that starts it off <laughs> 
you're rocketed to like the happiest place. I think we should talk for a second about the other major hit from this album, which is Knowing Me, Knowing You. I think if we're going to talk about melancholy, because ABBA does actively bring darker themes into their music, Knowing Me, Knowing You is a breakup song, more or less, and sort of presages maybe some of their divorce themes that start to come in in their later work. I think this is one of the few ABBA songs that is actually specifically about a family breaking up because right. it mentions in the lyrics, once upon a time children would be heard playing in these rooms and now it's all empty. It's clearly a family that's broken up. Then it's usually a matter of divorce. It's not just a man and a woman, in this case, splitting up. Right. It's actually a family splitting up. That's maybe where that whole thing starts. You could say this starts with SOS, but that kind of mature angle where, you know, you're grown-ups. This is grown-up singing. That kind right. of starts with Knowing Me, Knowing You. Knowing me. I remember reading somewhere as I was doing my research for this that one of the unique traits of ABBA is that they were writing songs from like a more middle-aged perspective. They started doing that around this time. It is very much about the life of the ordinary man and woman. There are very few ABBA songs that are about, hey, let's get into this car and drive away into the unknown. Right. Teenage dream. Yeah, exactly. It's more like, how can we make life work? Something bad has happened to me how do i cope you know it's office workers it's very specific about just trying to deal with your regular life it's not about escaping right it's not about uprooting yourself physically it's about this is my life i'm going to my job i'm paying my taxes and this is what <laughs> happens to people like me sometimes yeah and obviously if you're gonna have a group comprised of two husbands and wives who I think starting kind of post-arrival start to experience varying degrees of marital strife between them, you're gonna end up with songs that deal with those themes, and they do. Yeah, from that moment on, Bjorn sort of more specifically tries to write better lyrics, more meaningful lyrics, and trying to look around him to his own wife and to this other marriage in the group and what's going on there. Can we put something of that into the lyrics without it being kind of autobiographical there's an element of reality in there yeah i was really struck with their drive to continue evolving looking at these later periods 70s albums all the way through the visitors abba really never stopped trying to refine and build on what they were doing and add depth i was really struck by that for a group that's constantly pegged as frivolous pop they really were on an evolutionary journey with their sound that never ceased through all of their albums 
So with that in mind, let's get into some of their late 70s records. How would you describe ABBA, the album in 1977? Let's start with that. Do we see that evolution in that record and the hits from that album? That's maybe their most overtly ambitious album, I think. Okay, people are saying that we're doing superficial pop. We're still writing songs called Dum Dum Diddle <laughs> on the Arrival album. <laughs> let's do something else you know then you have something like eagle mm -hmm. which is like more progressive rock almost but with abba's pop style of progressive rock i was kind of almost getting like a cinematic western vibe yeah exactly it's kind of maybe their most American album in a way. And then you have the name of the game, which is six part structure. And it's kind of very much like what was going on in America at the time with bands like Fleetwood Mac. And it also contains a lot of lyrics about romantic politics in a marriage and like difficult yeah. politics in a long-term relationship. I was intrigued by the fact that in 1977, you brought up Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac is another combination of couples dealing with marital strife on record. They released their definitive relationship strife album, Rumors, in 1977, the same year as they're releasing this album, Abba the Album, that includes many songs that deal with similar themes through their Abba lens, obviously different than Fleetwood Mac, but I thought that was an interesting parallel actually yeah it's a valid parallel because i know that they were fans of that album and benny has said some point that he played it all over and over and over that album so they were inspired by that it's a very ambitious album and maybe a little too ambitious for my pop tastes sometimes i concur although i will make an exception for the song i think we should now take a beat on which is the second single take a chance on me which is a superlative episode no. of one of my personal faves. One of the things I love the best about Take a Chance on Me is the way the song opens with the acapella of the men's voices and the girls' voices on top of each other. Yeah. If you change your mind Take a chance on the first thing line Honey, I'm still free Take a chance on me If you need me, let me know Gonna be around If you got no place to go That's really about their best, isn't it? My perspective on that is this is the last time they do one of those innocent ABBA songs, if you will. Totally, yeah. totally. It yes. kind of harks back to early ABBA, but with a bit of maturity in it. After that, they never do anything that frivolous <laughs> to that extent. And also their most overtly disco song. I mean, even more so than Dancing Queen in a way. To that point. Yeah, too. yeah. It's certainly more dance friendly than Dancing Queen.
are the relationships starting to come apart here? The marriages? Is this the period where that starts to unfurl? Yeah, for Bjorn and Nieta, definitely their marriage had never been smooth. Right. So it's kind of starting to fall apart. And I always thought that one man, one woman was a bit about Bjorn and Nieta, you know, even though it's Frida singing mm-hmm. it. I always felt that it sounds so real that it sounds like something that Bjorn maybe had experienced himself, or at least parts of it. No smiles, not a single word at the breakfast table. Though I would have liked to begin. So much that I want to say, but I feel unable. You leave and you slam the door like you've done many times before. And I cry. I can't help but wonder like what it must be like for the women to be in a situation where maybe their relationships with these guys are falling apart, or at least Bjorn and Anietta's relationship is falling apart and to have to sing lyrics written by the man potentially about the relationship from his perspective and you're asked to sing the lyrics and I was just wondering about the politics of that within the group whether that chafed ever or whether they were really able to just maintain this amount of artistic respect that I did wonder thinking about these later records and knowing that they were going through stuff like what's it like to have to sing songs written about your crumbling relationship written by the other half of the crumbling relationship. <laughs> yeah. I think Frida you know? has said that it was kind of cathartic. They weren't enemies. They were still in the band. I mean, if they'd been enemies right. and couldn't stand being in the same room, right. they wouldn't have gone on with ABBA. They would have stopped the band. So I think... Well, I, Fleetwood Mac did. He, I mean, they actively despised each they, other during the creation did. of that record, it sounds That's like. very true. But yeah. I think ABBA were far too pragmatic. If they'd felt, right. we really don't want to work with these guys anymore, they would have sort of ended it. Yeah, it's kind of like that free of American ego thing coming back yeah. in it's like the american band is busy having ego problems and abba's like yeah we might be divorcing but like we're still making great music yeah. and that's important on its own yeah it sounds incredible but that seems to be the truth i'm sure it was difficult sometimes but at the end of the day they loved being in abba so much and enjoyed the right. music so much that it sort of trumped any other concerns however strange that may sound right okay so in 1979 they released voulez-vous which is pretty much their most overtly disco album. I mean, to me, this almost had a Bee Gees feel to it. You have songs like I Have a Dream and Chiquitita on it that are absolutely not disco, but apart from those, right. it's funkiest I've ever got, really, and dancey. Almost every song could be successful on the dance floor. is my favorite ABBA album. Oh, really? Talk yes. to me about why. Yeah, it's kind of where their old, shall we say, more pop sensibilities, that kind of let's make great hit records, meets the growing maturity and makes for a great combination. Many of these songs were written in the middle of Bjorn and Agneta's split up, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of desperation in there, in the lyrics and in the singing. I love the arrangements in that you have Benny's keyboards. That was always like the dominant factor in 
have us music, but you also have a lot of guitars and you right. have strings. You have the kind of battling for space and it's a very energetic album and it's a very sexy album. Mm-hmm. I get like a clubland feel from it. Towards the end of the other period, maybe they got a bit too mature, a bit too sure of what they were doing. Right. Here I still feel right. a sense of discovery, but they are getting just a little bit more mature and that mix makes for something that just draws me in. Really enjoyable album. Yeah. I yeah. love If It Wasn't For The Night, which I think was originally going to be the lead single, which it is a divorce song. Right? I mean, it is about their relationship falling apart, right? Yeah, yeah. He said in an interview at the time that he wrote the lyrics for If It Wasn't For The Night when he was feeling really, really down. I happened to know when it was recorded, it was in the autumn of 1978. I said to him, hey, you said this back in 1979 that you were really down when you wrote these lyrics and these lyrics were written when you were splitting up and you've gone on record to say how really devastated and sad you were and you cried a lot at night. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of about how like he was only happy at work, right? Yeah, and then like, yeah. when work would end, uh, he would get depressed because they were separate. Yeah, and he was alone. Exactly. And he said, well, he didn't remember specifically, but he said, well, I'm sure it was something that hit me on a lonely night. Mm. So that's as as far as he would go, you know. I love that song. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Oh, me too. Me too. It's a single that never was. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing that this album sort of gave was the foregrounding of synthesizers and electronic music in their sound. Gimme, gimme, gimme. You can almost feel the sort of I feel love influence on that in a sense. Yeah. You know, Gimme, 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 I feel like is a very interesting contrast to Dancing Queen in some senses. Another dance floor sort of escape into the night song, but it's much darker and much more sleazy feeling than Dancing Queen is, mm. you know? She's really desperate, you know? It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Dancing <laughs> Queen is quite innocent. It's someone who's innocent, 17 yes. and flirtatious. So this is kind of sexual to be blunt about. A hundred percent. Yeah, and like, yeah. Like voraciously so. Yeah, exactly. It's actually incredible looking back at this, Carl, and like how many incredible hits and albums they packed into such a short amount of time because. By 1980s Super Trooper, I think both the relationships are falling apart by that point. And the big hit from that album is The Winner Takes All, which is another sort of divorce record. That's the ultimate ABBA divorce song, really. That's one of those songs where Bjorn says it's fiction. And of course, if you look at the lyrics, it wasn't a matter of winners and losers in their split because they were both losers. They wanted to keep their marriage together and they couldn't. So it was a tragedy in every aspect. But I discussed it with him. I suggested that, well, is there a difference between the song like Knowing Me, Knowing You, which was written before your divorce, and The Winner Takes It All, which was written after? And he kind of agreed that, yeah, this is written by someone who has actually experienced the split in this way.
and there's a little bit more of a bitter edge to it. Like, I actually pulled out the lyric, tell me she kisses you like I used to kiss you, almost feels like a pre-Alanis set. you ought to know, almost, like, mm. bitter line. And Agneta, apparently, Bjorn says that she read through the lyrics and she started crying. She didn't stop because she was so moved by the lyrics. So obviously it hit something yeah. in her as well. So This is a gorgeous song. I mean, this is one of their best, I think. You know, people ask me often, they ask me, oh, which is your favorite ABBA song? And that changes, but I always come back to The Wind Shakes It All. So can we zoom out a little bit, broad stroke? So they do release one more album, The Visitors, which is a pretty astonishing album, an interesting ABBA record. But I do get a sense that following Super Trooper or during Super Trooper, not only are they falling apart as couples, but their commercial success is starting to wane slightly. Is that a correct characterization? I mean, Super Trooper was an immensely successful album. It was number one for nine weeks or whatever in the UK, and it Mm -hmm. sold like crazy all over the world. But after that, moving into 1981 and beyond, that's where it kind of starts to fall apart a bit commercially. I mean, you get the feeling that they're not really interested in being ABBA anymore outside the recording studio. If you want to be a pop star, you have to be a pop star you know maybe they were feeling well okay if that's the price we have to pay then maybe we shouldn't be pop stars anymore we shouldn't be a pop band anymore i don't think they put that into words in the way i just did but maybe that was like an underlying sense is that a function of the divorces or is that just a function of their goals and dreams and life's changing and just diverging ambitions or whatever i think it depends on who you ask in the group if you ask bjorn and benny they would say well it was more like you know we've done this abba thing now we can't take this any further we reached the end of the line plus they'd been trying for several years to get a musical off the ground that was their angle on it but if you talk to the girls you can sometimes feel okay they still wanted to be abba and they felt like doing the recordings and stuff like that but Agneta said in an interview not too long ago, it wasn't the same after the divorce. It mm. wasn't as much fun. So I think it was all of those things together, you know. Right. Everyone felt maybe for different reasons, okay, let's take a break. Because that's what they did. They took a break. That never ended. Y- yeah, exactly. Well, it ended last year. but, but It ended this yeah. year. <laughs> right, right, right. And so it wasn't acrimonious. I don't think it was acrimonious in that sense. Like, oh, we hate each other. Obviously, there were some bitterness there and all kinds of feelings as it had to be after you split up. But it wasn't like some of them really wanted to continue and some didn't and no, there was conflict. No, I it don't. just all felt like it was kind of coming to a natural denial. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Do you think there were shifts in pop more broadly that were causing them to fall out of favor in a way that they were reacting to in any sense? Yes, definitely, because they were moving in a more mature direction and thinking more theatrically and they were getting to be kind of middle-aged in their image and well, they weren't dressing up in any crazy costumes anymore. They, they <laughs> Right, making like right. just mums and dads and you go into the office kind of people and then all of a sudden you have Culture Club you know and Boy George and you have all the right. other synth pop artists and in America Madonna was just coming up and Cindy Lauper and all of a sudden it was the 80s you know the page had turned yeah exactly and they was not really interested in being part of that game and- I think pop stardom really changed in the 80s like the way it worked what it demanded of somebody like artists like Madonna and Cindy and Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson 
Jackson. They almost made pop stardom into something even more grueling and all-encompassing and demanding that, like, I can imagine might have been, like, not appealing to a group like ABBA. Yeah, and it was the video age. It was the MTV age. So you had to have a very specific image and you had to do very high-concept videos and be, you know, choreography and stuff like that. It was more of a 360-degree celebrity operation. More so than it had been. Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. How does ABBA's legacy evolve over time? Because I think that that's been a really interesting aspect of their post-breakup careers. Like, as you mentioned, there was a lot of backlash against them during the peak of their initial success, but I feel like they've gone through like a number of reassessments in pop culture over the last 40 years. Can you talk a little bit about how that's worked? Yeah, just after they'd split up, interest drops dramatically because they were so recent, they are now regarded as unfashionable. They were still a hit act in 1980 and in 1982 they were unfashionable but then Mm -hmm. of course you know a decade goes and in 1992 all of a sudden people are looking back to the 1970s and the 80s is not so hot anymore now you know oh they did a lot of great things in the 1970s so ABBA came back you know oh this great pop music is that when ABBA Gold came out yeah Yeah, ABBA Gold came out in 1992 (laughs) and that was the reintroduction of them to the mass market if you will and people like oh my god this is great you know even people who had taken them for granted at the time you popped in abba gold in their cd players and it's like wow this is classic pop song after classic pop song obviously the release of the musical is also another huge shift in their legacy right yeah it kind of brings them into the absolute mainstream the mamma mia musical for me it seems to kind of exist in its own universe in a way it's like Mm. abba and their own recordings of those songs that's over there and then you have the Mamma Mia musical what that stands for and what that is that's over there that's its own world over there in a way but obviously it's been great for keeping them in the spotlight people go and seek out the original songs so it's helped them stay relevant the revival didn't end in the 90s and then they died it sort of helped them stay there I think the musical speaks to the sturdiness of the songs it's like these songs can be completely recontextualized sung by other people reformatted for musical theater whatever it is and they continue to stand on their own you know take away all of the accoutrement or take away the time period or take away whatever like the context and these are just great sturdily written songs and i think it all ties back to what we began this conversation talking about which is that the focus on melody the meticulousness in creating these records created foundations that allow them to operate just as well in different eras and different contexts you know what i mean like musical theater Mm. pop radio in the 70s musical theater in the 2000s these songs hold up because they're at their core yeah very sturdily written songs yeah no of course that's a large part of why the musical works the beatles songs are also great pop songs and great classics but they are too much tainted by the rock thing and by oh these are sacred works of art you're taking these masterpieces and putting them in a new context you're trying to build a story around Mm. them we can't have that Mm. that's why those attempts haven't worked whereas with ABBA those songs they are pop songs it's easier to work them into a new context I think 
How do you feel like perceptions of ABBA have shifted into the present day with the way that perceptions of pop have shifted over time? Like, how do you feel like ABBA's reputation has morphed in the current state of pop? Like, how do we look at them now? Now they are untouchable. I mean, there are obviously people out there who don't like ABBA, and that's fine. But they're up there with the Beatles and with Elvis and with all these icons of popular music. So they have been accepted as that and they are still a touchstone for everyone who's doing pop and even for people who we not think of as pop artists you know like Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters keeps going on about how much he loves ABBA and all these other heavy yeah. metal acts they keep creeping up all the time they just are so respected and so loved and so appreciated for their craftsmanship basically immaculate pop basically that's where they are now I mean I remember when I started writing about ABBA my first book that was in the 90s and it happened to coincide with the first ABBA revival and I remember people said to me oh you better finish your book quickly because the ABBA revival might be over soon and I was like Mm. hmm well we'll see about that and now no one is saying anything like that to me anymore they're just a classic act now Let's talk about the Pantheon. I have my thought, but I know you have yours, and I would prefer if you shared what tier you think ABBA fits into the Pop Pantheon in. Well, I've studied your specific requirements. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As you should have. Yeah, I have. I have indeed. I've been a good boy. But I think whichever way you look at it, they have to be in the icon tier, I think. Ooh. They go against this thing of being continuously relevant with 12 to 15 or likely more smash hit songs over the span of multiple decades. I mean, in a way, you can't say they did that. Like Madonna has been Madonna from 1983 or wherever. She's still going and she's been successful Mm -hmm. and so on. I mean, ABBA had success in the 70s and in the early 80s. But then, of course, they came back in the 90s in a way. So without having to release new music they've had new waves of success yeah exactly i mean if you if you <laughs> that's look a really at, unique aspect of their if you career. look if you look at it from that way it's not like someone decided oh let's try to make this catalog of abba songs popular for a while we'll advertise it on tv it will sell well for a year or two it was consistently popular and their songs became big if we're talking pop and we're talking icons i mean where else could they be well let me jump in all right so i think i'm willing to give them the continuously relevant bullet point because of what we just said like it's not in the way that other pop stars have been but they have found a way to take their catalog from 1974 to 1982 or whatever and continue to like make it have relevance in our culture for a long period of time and they certainly have 12 to 15 smash hits so i'm willing to hand them that one they definitely can be referred to i think everybody knows who abba is i Mm -hmm. think that's they hit that criteria Numerous distinct musical eras. That's an interesting question. And yes, obviously they have, we talked about how they approach different records in different ways and sort of explored with genre. But I don't know that ABBA ever like, I guess they slowly morphed over time, but they weren't around long enough to pull off a full reinvention in the way that we think about it. I don't think. No. Like, 
No, that means that's... Same approach. And that's the downside in in this... Uh, in the short-livedness of it. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. the context that they were a group. Because groups right. usually have like a limited time span. And then the things that those individual members did before that or after that doesn't count. Right. Well, they reinvented the catalog, though. Like, yeah. if you think about Mamma Mia, I mean, that's like a reinvention of what ABBA is. Yeah. Could If you want to make a stretch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Widely noted and long-lasting impact on the shape of the genre. Absolutely. Yeah. Widely considered by casual fans to be a pillar of the genre. It's, absolutely. Yeah. Generation or decade defining as an entity image icon. I think definitely. Absolutely. Name means something more than the sum of their hits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think their legacy, nothing they could do could really shift their legacy at this point. It's pretty codified. Yes. You know, multimedia moments that defined an era. I think so. Eurovision, all these things are, you know, obviously like emblems of the 70s mm-hmm. and of like 70s pop. Their legacy and impact was widely recognizable in artists that came after them. I mean, duh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, far enough removed from their initial peak. Yes. Touring arenas. You know, I think one of the issues, Carl, that we might be running into a little bit here is the sort of international thing. Because I think this has evened out over time to some degree. I do think their stature is on a higher level in Europe than it is here. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I'm wondering, like, I know they're never going to tour again, right? Like, they wanted to tour as holograms. Do I have that right? Like, mm. they don't ever want to go on tour again. Mm, no, not as real life people. That's not going to happen, no. That's sad, because I would like that. Yeah. But, th- that, but my question is, I'm wondering, like, if they did, let's say, hypothetically, just to play a thought experiment game here, if they did launch a tour in America, like, I wonder what kind of venues they would tour. At the this stage, I think they could probably fill arenas and stadiums in America as well. I agree. I, I, th- I, think I, th- right. I think so. They couldn't have done that 20 years ago, but I think they could do it today because everyone knows that they're such a classic act and they wouldn't want to miss right. out. And again, it's like the musical has just reintroduced them to like a huge new fan base. Yeah, and people are not embarrassed about them or anything like that anymore. They right. just, <laughs> just go there to have a good time, you know. And just enjoy those songs. 100%. Yeah. They're really enigmatic in the context of this pantheon, I gotta say. Mm. It feels like they belong in this upper echelon, but they don't, like, track so neatly to some of these other acts. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, they are a bit odd, Abba. But they're such a superlative pop act that it yeah. makes you want Like, I was going to pitch you on tier two, mm-hmm. but that's, I think, from my American perspective. Because, like, I've watched Abba's stature change over my lifetime here. Like, mm. I don't remember growing up and ABBA being something, like, respectable for, like, cool people to be into. Like, when I was a kid, you know, I'm 35 now, but I've seen the way that that's shifted with time. And I, to me, as a DJ, I also have been able to just watch how their stature has only increased over time. And the sort of scarlet letter that I think was attached to them based on their pure popness has dissolved. Mm. So it is interesting. Like, I'm kind of torn between the tier two thing and the tier one well, thing. Yeah. If only because they're dinged between the short livedness of the actual run of hits like i think that's where i'm stumbling a little bit yeah. it's just like we're talking about seven eight years right. you know what i mean whereas like everybody else in tier one you're talking about 30 years of relevant music making for many of them yeah. you know what i mean like so or 20 20 30 years so that's i think where i'm getting a little bit hung up no no i agree with you and actually when i first looked at this i thought okay it's megastar it has to be a megastar yeah but then i thought well right. it's abba yeah i'm not talking as a huge abba fan you know you can put that to the side i'm just looking yeah. at who they are and how they are perceived and then it felt like well 
they have to be icons even though especially the first bullet point there it goes against them but i'll give you megastar for the united states and icon for everywhere else yeah, yeah. i think that's good i think that's what we should do yeah, yeah. i think that feels exactly what i would say yeah, yeah. i love that all right so last question for you carl first of all thank you so much this was just an incredible lesson for me i just love talking to you you are both so knowledge filled and so passionate and i'm so pleased and grateful to you for coming on the podcast i enjoyed it my last question for you is what's an underrated abba song maybe something we haven't spent time talking about yet that we could send the podcast out on mm. well as good as new which is the lead off track from the voulez-vous album it was actually a single in mexico of all places and a huge hit there <laughs> I think the Mexicans got it right. You shouldn't build a wall between the United States ah. and Mexico. You should tear down the walls and get politics. Their, yeah, and get their musical tastes into the United States. <laughs> uh, Who said they weren't political? Yeah. <laughs> no, but joking aside, I mean, as good as new, it's such a fantastic song. It could have been a great single. Benny said in an interview a couple of decades ago, he called it, it was an unnecessary song. <laughs> That's the word used <laughs> i feel it's completely necessary and i get excited mm -hmm. every time i hear it it's anietta at her best it's ab at their best it's the string arrangement is fantastic well as you can tell i could go <laughs> on about this song so here's as good as new carl magnus palm thank you so so much for being on the podcast thank you for having me y'all that is pop pantheon abba tier one international icons tier two mega stars in america the judgment is rendered i want to say thank you so so much to the brilliant carl magnus palm wow what a treat to have him on the show what a wealth of knowledge man did you learn shit i learned shit that was incredible Thank you all for listening. Please follow the podcast at Pod Pantheon Pod on Instagram and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Instagram and Twitter. Get in the Discord and connect with other pop music fanatic like minded folks, such as yourself and with me. Get the ABBA Essentials Spotify playlist in the show notes of this episode and also on social media. And if you're coming to Gorgeous Gorgeous tomorrow night, make sure you come say hey to me and we can hug. And that's going to be so fun. I'm sure I'm going to play a lot of ABBA songs after this week's episode. So until next time have a wonderful life bye bye my love for you